This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Anticipator by Morley Roberts. It's read by Mr. Jim Moon. It runs just over 16 minutes, and I'll be discussing it with him afterwards. The Anticipator by Morley Roberts Of course I admit it isn't plagiarism, said Carter S. Bland savagely. It's fate. It's the devil. But is it less irritating on that account? No. No. And he ran his hand through his hair until it stood on end. He shook with febrile excitement. A red spot burned on either cheek, and his bitten lip quivered. Confound Burford and his parents and his ancestors. The tools to him that can handle them, he added after a pause, during which his friend Vincent curiously considered him. It's your own fault, my dear wild man, said he. You are too lazy. Besides, these things, these notions, motives, are in the air. Originality is only the art of catching early worms. Why don't you do the things as soon as you invent them? Now you talk like a bourgeois, like a commercial traveller, returned Esplan angrily. Why doesn't an apple tree yield apples when the blossoms are fertilised? Why wait for summer and the influences of wind and sky? Why don't live chickens burst new-laid eggs? Shall parturition tread suddenly on conception? Didn't the mountain labour to bring forth a mouse? And shall... Your works of genius do not require a portion of the eternity to which they are destined? Stuff! snarled Esplan. But you know my method. I catch the suggestion. The floating thistle-down of thought. The title, maybe. And then I leave it, perhaps without a note, to the brain, to the subliminal consciousness, the subconscious self. The story grows in the dark of the inner, perpetual, sleepless soul. It may be rejected by the artistic tribunal sitting there, it may be bidden to stand aside. I, the outer I, the husk of heredities, know nothing of it. But one day I take the pen, and the hand writes it. This is the automatism of art. And I, I am nothing, the last only of the concealed individualities within me. Perhaps a dumb ancestor attains speech. And yet, the complex ego S-plan must be anticipated in this way. He rose and paced the lonely club smoking room with irregular steps. His nerves were evidently quivering. His brain was wild. But Vincent, who was a physician, saw deeper. For S-plan's speech was jerky. At times he missed the right word. The speech centres were not under control. What of morphine? He thought. I wonder if he's at it again, and is today without his quantum. But Esplan burst out once more. I should not care so much if Burford did them well. 
but he does not know how to write a story. Look at that last thing of mine. Of his. I saw it leaping and alive. It rang and sang. A very mean ad. It had red blood. With him, it wasn't even born dead. It squeaks puppetry and leaks sawdust. And moves like a lay figure and smells of the most manifest manufacture. But I can't do it now. He has spoilt it forever. It's the third time. Curse him and my luck. I work when I must. Your calling is very serious to you, said Vincent lazily. After all, what does it matter? What are stories? Are they not opiates for cowards' lives? I would rather invent some little instrument, or build a plank bridge across a muddy stream, than write the best of them. Esplan turned on him. Well, well, he almost shouted. The man who invented chloroform was great, and the makers of it are useful. Call stories chloral, morphia, bromides, if you will. But we give ease. When it might be better to use blisters. Rot! answered Esplan rudely. In any case, your talk is idle. I am I. Writers are writers. Small, if you will, but a result and a force. Give me rest. Don't talk, ideal poppycock. He ordered liqueur brandy, and after drinking it, his aspect changed a little, and he smiled. Perhaps it won't occur again. If it does, I shall feel that Burford is very much in my way. I shall have to remove him, asked Vincent. No, but work quicker. I have something to write soon. It would just suit him to spoil. The talk changed, and soon afterwards the friends parted. Esplan went to his chambers in Bloomsbury. He paced his sitting-room idly for a few minutes. But after a while... He began to feel the impulse in his brain. His fingers itched. The semi-automatic mood came on. He sat down and wrote. At first slowly, then quicker, and at last furiously. It was three in the afternoon when he commenced work. At ten o'clock he was still at his desk, and the big table on which it stood was strewn with tobacco ashes and many pipes. His hair again stood on end, for at intervals he ran his damp hands through it. His eyes altered like opals. At times they sparkled and almost blazed, and then grew dim. He changed at each sentence. He mouthed his written talk audibly. Each thought was reflected in his pale, mobile face. He laughed and then groaned. At the crisis... Tears ran down and blurred the already undecipherable script. But at eleven he rose, stiff in every limb and staggering. With difficulty he picked up the unpaged leaves from the floor and sorted them in due order. He fell back into his chair. It's good, it's good, he said chuckling. What a queer devil am I? My dumb ancestors pipe oddly in me. It's strange, devilishly strange. Man's but a mouthpiece, and crazy at that. 
How long has this last thing been hatching? The story's old, yet new. Gibbon shall have it. It will suit him. Little beast, little horror, little hog, with a divine gold ring of appreciation in his grubbing snout. He drank half a tumbler of whiskey and tumbled into bed. His mind ran riot. My ego's a bit fissured, he said. I ought to be careful. And ere he fell asleep and talked conscious nonsense. Incongruous ideas linked themselves together. He sneered at his brain's folly, and yet he was afraid. He used morphine at last in such a big dose that it touched the optic center, and subjective lightnings flashed in his darkroom. He dreamed of an at home where he met big, brutal Burford, wearing a great diamond in his shirt front. Bought by my conveyed thoughts, he said, but looking down, he perceived that he had a greater jewel of his own, and soon his soul melted in the contemplation of its rays, till his consciousness was dissipated by a divine absorption into the very nirvana of light. When he woke the next day, it was already late in the afternoon. He was overcome by yesterday's labor, and though much less irritable, he walked feebly. The trouble of posting his story to Gibbon seemed almost too much for him, but he sent it and took a cab to his club, where he sat almost comatose for many hours. Two days afterwards, he received a note from the editor returning his story. It was good, but Burford sent me a tale with the same motive weeks ago, and I accepted it. Esplan smashed his thin white hand on his mantelpiece and made it bleed. That night he got drunk on champagne, and the brilliant wine seemed to nip and bite and twist every nerve and brain cell. His irritability grew so extreme. That he lay in wait for subtle, unconceived insults and meditated morbidly on the aspect of innocent strangers. He gave the waiter double what was necessary, not because it was particularly deserved, but because he felt that the slightest sign of discontent on the man's part might lead to an uncontrollable outburst of anger on his own. Next day, he met Burford in Piccadilly. And cut him dead with a bitter sneer. I daren't speak to him. I daren't, he muttered. And Burford, who could not quite understand, felt outraged. He himself hated Esplan with the hatred of an outpaced, outsailed rival. He knew his own work lacked the diabolical certainty of Esplan's. It wanted the fine phrase. The right red word of colour, the rush and onward march to due finality, the bitter exact conviction, the knowledge of humanity that lies in inheritance, the exalted experience that proves received intuitions. He was, he knew, a successful failure, and his ambition was even greater than Esplan's, for he was greedy, grasping, insurgent, and his hollowness. Was obvious even before Esplan proved it with his ringing touch. He takes what I have done and does it better. It's malice, malice. He urged to himself, 
and when Esplan placed his last story, and the world remembered, only to forget in its white-hot brilliance the cold paste of Burford's Paris duel, he felt hell surge within him, but he beat down his thoughts for a while, and went on his little laboured way. The success of the story, and Burford's bitter eclipse, helped Esplan greatly, and he might have got saner, if other influences working for misery in his life had not hurt him. For a certain woman died, one whom none knew to be his friend, and he clung to morphine, which, in its increase, helped to throw him later. And at last the crash did come, for Burford had two stories, far better than his usual work, in a magazine that Esplan looked on as his own. They were on Esplan's very motives. He had them almost ready to write. The sting of this last bitter blow drove him off his tottering balance. He conceived murder, and plotted it brutally, and then subtly, and became dominated by it, till his life was the flower of the insane motive. It altered nothing that a reviewer pointed out the close resemblance between the two men's work, and, exalting Esplan's genius, placed one writer beyond all cavil, the other below all place. But that drove Burford crazy. It was so bitterly true. He ground his teeth, and hating his own work, hated worse the man who destroyed his own conceit. He wanted to do harm. How should he do it? Esplan had long since gone under. He was a homicidal maniac, with one man before him. He conceived and wrote schemes. His stories ran to murder. He read and imagined means. At times, he was in danger of believing he had already done the deed. One wild day, he almost gave himself up for this proleptic death. Thus his imagination burnt and flamed before his conceived path. I'll do it, I'll do it, he muttered, and at the club men talked about him. Tomorrow, tomorrow, he said, and then he put it off. He must consider the art of it. He left it to burgeon in his fertile brain. And at last, just as he wrote, Action, lighted up by strange circumstances, began to loom big before him. Such a murder would wake a vivid world, and be an epoch in crime. If the Red Earth were convulsed in war, even then it would stay to hear that incredible true story, and, soliciting deeper knowledge, seek out the method and growth of means and motive. He chuckled audibly in the street, and laughed thin laughter in the room of his fleeting visions. At night he walked the lonely streets near at hand, considering eagerly the rush of his own divided thoughts, and leaning against the railings of the leafy gardens, he saw ghosts in the moon's shadows, and beckoned them to converse. He became a night bird, and was rarely seen. Tomorrow, he said at last. Tomorrow, he would really take the first step. He rubbed his hands and laughed as he pondered near home, in his own lonely square, 
the finer last details which his imagination multiplied. Stay, enough, enough, he cried to his separate mad mind. It is already done. And the shadows were very dark about him. He turned to go home. Then came immortality to him in strange shape, for it seemed as though his ardent and confined soul burst out of his narrow brain and sparkled marvellously. Lights showered about him, and from a rose sky lightnings flashed, and he heard awful thunder. The heavens opened in a white blaze, and he saw unimaginable things. He reeled, put his hand to his stricken head, and fell heavily in a pool of his own blood. And the anticipator, horribly afraid, ran down a by-street. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Mr. Jim Moon. And we're going to talk about The Anticipator by Morley Roberts, which is an 1898 short story that I found through a route obscure and lonely. Uh, <laughs> very weird way of finding this story. Um, it was through reading an old issue of Galaxy Magazine in which uh, a certain Arthur C. Clarke wrote a story called uh, A Recursion of Meta Stories, also known as The Longest Short Story Ever Written, I think, or The <laughs> Longest Story Ever Written. And it's it's cute. It's a one-page story that, you know, has an infinite loop in it. Um, and then I was looking through more old magazines, and then I found an article or an editorial in which uh, the same author, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, um, pointed out that his his mistake in the story was attributing it to H.G. Wells, attributing something to H.G. Wells, which was actually uh, written by Morley Roberts. And he goes into the details of the original story, The Anticipator, and uh, and there we have it. Um, how did you encounter this story? Was it through me first? It was Tim? through you, yes. Okay. <laughs> I'd not heard of it. I mean, I'd heard of Morley Roberts vaguely. Yeah, well, I didn't know he'd written anything kind of in this in the sort of fantastic vein. Um, yeah, it, it's a weird story. Like, is it a is it a? I've seen it in a time travel anthology listed, but has it got time travel in it? <laughs> I don't know. No, not really. <laughs> it plays with time, I suppose you could say. But <laughs> yes, yeah. And there, there's, there's a lot of weird things going on in it. But yeah, Morley Roberts, uh, I'd not heard of him before uh, this story. But in my looking at his stories in old um, the Strand magazines, uh, he was a hugely popular writer. He was in just as many issues as um, Conan Doyle or H.G. Wells. And that's how I think of him is like sort of a contemporary writer of this similar stature, if not, you know, as high. How did say, you... He seems to be, he seems to have sort of, his star seems to have sunk. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I came across him reading about kind of um, popular Victorian novelists who we've forgotten about, ironically enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I read through his Wikipedia entry and he's got, 
it says he traveled when he was younger. He went to Australia, um, and then he went to Canada and the United States. He worked in all those places. He went through Oceania, which I guess is just the South, South Pacific Islands. And, mm. uh, and then used a lot of that, especially Australia in his writing. But in this story, uh, it's, it's, it's about the writer's life, right? <laughs> Entirely. Well, it does give you an interesting insight into the career of writing as it was back then. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's kind of, you know, we think of writers as producers of books. Whereas, you know, in the Victorian era and probably up to about the forties until like paperbacks really take off, it's kind of, you know, the, the market for writers was magazines and, you know, nearly all the great novels came out in serial form. Mm-hmm. And you find like, you know, lots of, you know, name writers of sort of somewhere of that period in their career somewhere. They've got like an SF story, a fantasy story or a horror story or a ghost story. And it's because they just used to write widely for all these different magazines and take, you know, write for different markets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we remember Wells as being an SF author, but he wrote voluminously on everything. In the same way we think of Arthur Conan Doyle as writing, you know, crime and Sherlock Holmes, but he dabbled all over the place with all kinds mm-hmm. of different stories. And it's kind of ironic that, you know, we found Mr. Molly Roberts through one of his atypical stories. Yeah. <laughs> but I think and it reflects kind of the, the appetite and the market was so big. Um, what you have in this story is that I think it is kind of like a fictional spin on the writer's fear of kind of, I've had this great idea, but what if somebody else has it as well? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in my reading through old issues of The Strand, which are all available on, or at least a lot of them are available on archive.org, um, mm-hmm. I, I would come across Morley Roberts over and over again um, in the intervening time between when I found this story and, uh, and uh, today. And the one thing that I noticed about Morley Roberts stories as opposed to any other stories uh, that, you know, I was looking through, you know, the, oh, there's an Arthur Conan Doyle, there's a, there's a Wells, right, was that his titles of his stories were incredibly familiar in that they were always some sort of um, idiom or phrase that you've heard mm. a thousand times, which is rather uh, fitting considering that this story has a you know it has this idea that you've got to catch the you've got to catch the idea before and get it down before someone else does um i'm not sure if he's 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 always catching capturing the popular imagination or if it's like um in steam engine time they make steam engines you know railroading time they make railroads um but it does seem, you know, if you look at the history of technology with like light bulbs, it's not one guy working on a light bulb; it's many and airplanes and everybody. Well, so barbed wire was invented in the around the same time by three different people, and those oh, right. tangle it. We're getting the patents for that, but it was kind right. of it was that idea was right. It seemed. <laughs> hmm. And there's there's some amazing things going on in this short short story, like. I mean, first of all, there's the way it's written. It's very, um, I want to say flowery, but I don't think that's the exact right word. There's a lot of um, playing with the language and just telling the story. It's not straight. It's not a straight ahead telling. It's like a writer writing about a writer who likes writing. (laughs) 
sort of writing. <laughs> uh, he, he drank a tumbler of, of uh, scotch or something, then tumbles into bed. <laughs> like, mm. okay, that's clever. But he's also, he's also, besides the, the, fl- the sort of ornate style of, of telling the story, there's also like some weird ideas going on in it. Like, did you notice that, uh, he talks about his ancestors like four or five times? Yes, that was really fascinating. This kind of idea that kind of, um, I don't know. I think um, maybe it was, uh, tapping into some sort of current theory that was invoked yeah. that kind of, um, there's, you know, ideas of like a collective race memory. Mm-hmm. And that it's, you know, it's all, it's, you know, it's not just your biological structure in the genes, it's the memory of the entire race. And, uh, you know, we are the product of that. And, you know, these things sort of, you know, bubble up, you know, not from yeah. the subconscious, but from kind of the, the subgenetics of the entire human race. It's, it's an interesting idea. It doesn't really sort of elaborate on it. You add some color no. to the story, but it's kind of, I suppose it gives the story a mechanism, like an SF mechanism, for why mm-hmm. writers do have the same ideas that these, they both surface in two different individuals who have got the right ancestry at the same time. And uh, in fitting with that, you know, the, the, the ancestry Burford is actually, you know, that's a relatively real name. But Fplan mm. almost doesn't exist as a name. I, I tried to figure it out. There's, you know, Esplanade, but that's not the same thing. I was trying, is it an acronym? You know, <laughs> is it, is it a word scramble? <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I, I thought maybe, you know, these were supposed, these two characters were supposed to be, uh, Morley Roberts and, you know, someone else. Arthur C. Clarke thinks it's, you know, it's, it might be H.G. Wells, which, <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, if things had gone differently, it might have worked. <laughs> now, it did strike me as an odd name. It's kind of, I wonder whether it was some kind of derived from an anagram and there's kind of, there's an in-joke yeah. there that we, we, um, we're not aware of. <laughs> the only, the only thing that I could find, if you put Carter, uh, Carter S. Plant together into, you know, one of those Scrabble, uh, you know, give me a word mm. out of this sort of thing is there's the, a word for the third, the Holy Ghost, um, which is not completely wrong, but um, doesn't really fit with the rest of the story. Uh, but what I was actually thinking a lot of the time was S-plan sounds like Esper, right? But mm. that doesn't happen until later. Uh, you know, ESP studies as, you know, the word... Uh, extrasensory perception doesn't happen until like the 30s or something so that doesn't work it's just a just a weird name i think <laughs> it's just weird yeah it is i'm sure there's there must be some sort of story or, or thinking behind it um oh you know it just has does have the ring of an anagram to it, <laughs> it totally does um it might be like one of those cases where you you have to move the letter uh, you know, one up for each. So E becomes D and S becomes mm. T, you know, <laughs> and then it all, you know, falls out. But I, well, I wonder if it's, I wonder if it's a, um, a play on explain. It's not bad. It's, <laughs> it's not bad. Um, 
his his character is i mean it's it's so much in a four page story he's a he's a drug addict right <laughs> um he's uh, uh, the Hosian uh, school as it were. Yeah. um and he seems to be like on a downward spiral too in just the the short little story and i mean i I love how much there is going on in this little story and it, it is got this inevitability uh, that makes it very SF. I mean, a lot of short stories in SF are, I kind of describe them as just being jokes, you know, um, it's the, and I think in, in uh, Arthur C. Clarke's essay, he says, I had this idea for a story where a girl and a boy on a, crash a spaceship into a planet and, Dun dun dun. Her name's even his his name's Adam, right? Like that's just a you know that's a four page story that's a mm. joke, and and that happens. Uh, there's probably 500 examples in old SF magazines of that exact plot, right? Which is cute, but mm. it is not super new. Whereas in this, I think this is the only story that is basically this story, and it is really well done. And it made me think, like, is there another, I mean, it goes a little too meta, I know, but <laughs> is there another writer who is, damn, I was going to write this story about a guy who <laughs> anticipates another, you know, and the way this is so flowerly written, it's almost as if we can imagine Esplan wrote it versus uh, Burford, who was sort of the clunkier, but first, first out the gate, right? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um the closest kind of analogues to um, this story, uh, there is kind of like a subgenre of like doppelganger stories. Mm. I suppose William Will- William Williamson. Uh, right. There's a, a Roger Moore man, the man who haunted himself, um, right. where you know someone has an exact double who will supersede and replace them. Um, but it's quite far away. I mean, this kind of Id- this sort of twist. This story has, as you say, I've not, I can't think of anything quite similar to it. Where a lot of twist in the tale stories, you can say, oh, that's almost of that family. It's like, yes, you know, mm-hmm. um, the it's, distant it's so inevitable. And, and logical. Mm. I love it. Uh, and, and it also, because of the way it's set up, it makes me think of like, okay, so the, the, it doesn't even say who the guy who, who is the anticipator is at the end, but it's gotta be Burford, right? Right, must be, must be, must be. Has to be. <laughs> so if it's Burford, uh, um, then I don't think he's going to get away with it. You know how <laughs> if if uh, Esplan did the murder, he you know it's it's well executed. He, he uh, there's a pun there. Um, it's well executed. <laughs> he, he's he's thought of all the you know the things that could go wrong, and he comes to you know uh, an artistic murder. <laughs> Whereas with with uh, Burford, he's like, "Oh shit, he's gonna kill me! I gotta kill him first <laughs> And he's like, "Hit him on the head and run!" And it said, you know, the last line, horribly afraid. He's afraid of getting caught. Right? Yeah, that's a very good point. I'd not that I hadn't considered that, but yes, that that is perfectly logical. That Esplan would commit the perfect murder. Where. Burford will be having a visit from the local constabulary in yeah. the next couple of There's days. Some witness <laughs> going to have seen him. Yeah. Um, 
Something's going to link them together. <laughs> There'll be blood on his clothes. He won't have cleaned his spats. Or he'll have overlooked something. <laughs> Absolutely. And the the um, there's a couple of scenes too, and one is right before the end, um, where he's sort of leaving consciousness, uh, or at least leaving his normal normal everyday reality. And one is when he's going to sleep right after he has that mm. tumbler full of. Uh, whiskey or whatever it is, um, it it he's like entering sort of the dreamland where connections are being made in dreams that talk about where the ideas for stories come from, and he calls it the semi-automatic uh, writing. Right? It's just mm. sit down in front of the paper and start writing, and then eight hours later, oh wow, this is a great story. Where'd that come from? <laughs> And I mean, that is sort of, you know, this is a very self-conscious or not self-conscious. The character is very conscious of how little input he, the outer he, you know, the I has in his own work. And yet he's also talking about the immortality of him living through his stories. And then at the end, uh, it says, um, then came immortality to him in a strange shape. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, oh, he's just walking down, you know, a street and, and we don't know what's going on. For it seemed as though his ardent and confined soul burst out of his narrow brain <laughs> and sparkled marvelously, <laughs> which fits with other things that have happened before. Light showered about him and from, and from a rose sky, lightnings flashed and he heard awful thunder. The heavens opened in a white blaze, and he saw unimaginable things. He reeled, put his hand on his stricken head, and fell heavily in a pool of his own blood. He just got bonked on the head. <laughs> I don't know by what, but that's, it's brilliant. It's wonderfully written because he's kind of, it's until you get to that last little sentence that it's an, oh, that's what's happened. <laughs> he's mm. not just suddenly having a spontaneous visionary experience which given the way he works would fit would fit with his character being Absolutely. a writer who um who waits for his inspiration from to and then writes it in a frenzy and it's because kind of the, yeah. the reveal is a wonderful turnaround um, <laughs> early, the, la- the language we... also mirrors the actual oh, yeah. violence of what's happening which amuses me immensely you know oh <laughs> but, yeah so it's deliciously ironic and I've I've seen only one review online, and you know the the uh, reviewer said it was you know it was okay, <laughs> but I think I th- I mean not all stories have the same the same uh, potential to you know blow you away. Uh, just whatever you know, if you're talking about an ant, uh, you know, trying to move a piece of grain or something to its anthill that that homeric epic is not going to be as interesting to me as you know some no matter how well written mm. I, I don't think it could be but there's something about you know the inevitability and in that i mean i love short stories but the inevitability of this along with the the very it's it's like it's been written twice you know it's like been written with a plot and then it's been written over with this um, confidence of a of a great stylist somehow. There's there's the scene where 
um, he's having a dream and he sees his enemy and he has a jewel, a diamond, I think it is, right? Yeah, on his, um, on his, uh, shirt front. And then he looks down and he says, Oh, I have my own diamond in his dream. <laughs> and, uh, the first time I read that, I thought, um, Oh, that's not really a diamond. That's, that's a story, right? It's like, the Burford's getting the diamond from from selling more than Esplan, uh, so he can afford it, you know, diamond. Whereas Esplan has the diamond of the story itself, and I think it might actually work both ways rather than just the one way. But in sleeping, in having his, you know, having the ideas come together in that, you know. Uh, half sleep and then sleep and dream. Um, he's able to write. It is like how you sort of get ideas and uh, get them out of you. And, and I think that's just brilliant writing. I really like this story. Well, so I took the jewel to mean he's kind of, it's his subconscious, so to say, kind of, all right, Burford has the success, but you have the greater talent. Yeah, um, but yeah, and and that immortality, right? Of of a great story, you know, a great story will live on. And what's so interesting is that this 1898 is, I mean, it's very early still for short stories. We don't think of, I mean, I guess they've been around since the 19th century, middle of the 19th century, early 19th century, right? But this is the hot time for for writing, as you were saying, you know the People are making their living writing for the magazines. Um, and, you know, at one point in the story, he says, oh, that was my magazine. How can Burford you know, get published in it? That's mine. Right? It's like Arthur, uh, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, The Strand. That's my magazine. Mm. <laughs> um, that the thing is, is writing for the time, you get paid the cash. But... um like the nine billion names of God the, by Arthur C. Clarke rather than Car- Carter Scholes, that story is going to be immortal, I think, right? In this, as long as people are around to read it. Mm. Um, and that, I, I think that that, there's something of that going on in here in that, in that, that the, the difference between publishing for, for cash and publishing because it has to be published because it's great. It has to be shown mm. whether, you know, it, it's appreciated at the time it will be appreciated later on. I think it's, it's just interesting that, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, he said this story preyed upon his mind, you know, um, in one of his editorials there. And, uh, that led me to it. That led you to it. Uh, putting it out as a podcast is going to lead it to other people, but it's, it, as long as we don't, you know, burn all the copies of, <laughs> of the story. It's going to be immortal. It's going to live on and it's going to be great. Even, even though it has all these, you know, I mean, if it was today, it wouldn't be morphine addiction, right? It would be, I don't know, uh, addiction to your, your screen or something, screen addiction or <laughs> texting or whatever it is. It wouldn't, it wouldn't work exactly the same. It's, this story is going to be immortal in mm. a sense. Well, I think there's also, um, another irony as well is that, um, because there is this, undercurrent about the kind of the celebrity 
of writers, of uh, the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, certain magazines did have star authors who, that you know, the editors knew, if you stick on the cover in this issue story by, say, right. Arthur Conan Doyle, H.G. Wells, or For Weird Tales in the Pulp, or Robert oh, yeah. e. Howard, or H.P. Lovecraft, they'd fly off the shelves. Sure. Um, and I think at the end, it's kind of when the, you know, the immortality comes upon him, it's the fact that Burford has killed him, cutting short this glory and career, gives him instantly a legendary status. Yeah. You know, James Dean syndrome. Um, yeah. And, you know, people will look back on, on his work and sigh and say, oh, it's so cruel that, you know, yeah. he died before he could write more, because you get the impression that um, Esplan isn't prolific. No, um, and there's only be a small canon left that's going to be treasured, and it will have that added status because it was a life cut short. Whereas right. Burford will have the no- notoriety of killing him, but his work won't be remembered. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think you know he he was Morley Roberts was a pretty much an exact contemporary of of Wells. Mm. Um, and they they both lived at least into the 40s. Uh, I think that's when. Uh, Wells died as well. I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, the, the careers, um, you know, they both had, uh, flowering careers in the late 19th century. And then Morley Roberts, uh, his sort of fame seems to have dropped off very steeply, uh, after World War One. Um, and I think, you know, if, if you do have this person who's, you know, they are cut off, the Dean, um, uh, James Dean sort of effect, it does make you say, oh, I wonder, you know, that's what people say about Robert E. Howard, right? They say, oh, wow, he could have, he could have come off and written who knows what great things. It's mm. such a tragedy. Um, maybe. Who knows? Sometimes they, they, you know, they have three great books and then they're, they're out, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> they, well this is it. So. They're spent. I mean, it's just very much the same in music, but music is full of, uh, referred idols like that, you know what I mean? Where you think, well, if they had lived, I don't think every album would have been gold, would have been doing terribly pretentious, pompous, turgid <laughs> double albums by the time they were 40, if they'd lived. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think there is that danger of, um, deifying those who died young. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, kind of with, with Morley Roberts, he did live on, and I think, you know, he's one of those writers or one of those artists who was unlucky enough to just, you know, his style fell out of fashion. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, you know, he seemed to write just like a lot of, uh, from what I can tell, kind of like socially realistic kind of works. Um, although, you know, he'd have been a proper literary writer in his day. Unfortunately, the modern literary crowd doesn't really go back to these guys in the mm-hmm. same way a genre crowd will go back to, well, any old tat if it's SF. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? We, um, or, or it's crime or Western. You know, with the, for genre fiction, there's a great love of going back and preserving the past. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, like, that, you mean, Lovecraft was wasn't even writing fashionably in the pulps. He was writing in no. an archaic style, but yeah. he's still remembered. His books are still in every bookstore <laughs> and and will be, you know, 
certainly till the end of my lifetime. Um, because, you know, genre fans will go back and love it, whereas, say, I think it's a bit of a shame to literary writers, if, they, if their style falls out of fashion and their ideas aren't seen as, don't, you know, aren't deemed worth study, they're forgotten very quickly. <laughs> It, well, it, that's even talked about in this story, right? The mm. the the friend at, in the beginning at the club is saying um, uh, he's saying that it's like uh, stories are are a morphine. It's not morphine, but it's a, a bromide or something, right? It's just a it's just well, something. It. An escape. Yeah, it, mm. yeah, it's an escape. It's not it's not for anything. It's not like you've built a bridge over, a, you know, a creek or something. It's not special. And he says, <laughs> S-Plan is like, well, that's what you say. And, you know, aren't bromides valuable and aren't, uh, you know, more, doesn't morphine relieve pain and all that stuff? But, uh, but also, I'm me. I can't be a guy who builds bridges, right? Mm. I'm a writer. And he says, I, the... The outer eye, the husk case of heredities, and it's like that's that's where that this ancestry part goes in, right? Know nothing of it, but one day I take the pen and the hand it writes it. It's like, wow, like this is this is a very interesting meta. I mean, it's super super meta, right? Oh, well, it that's, is. I mean, it's it's a story about writers, and it's a story about writing, and a story about a writer writing about writing. <laughs> And about, uh, you know, what writing's for, too. Mm. And that, that's, we always think of postmodernism being, you know, the, talk, like moonlighting, you know, where the characters talk to the camera, right? Or something mm. like that. Or they, you know, they know they're on a TV show, like on Community. Um, and usually it's done with a kind of, I mean, in, a, in essence, this is also a funny story. It could be in an anthology of, of funny stories. Not just um, as in humorous stories, right? Um, but it's not done in the same way. It, it sort of takes itself a little more seriously than than the postmodern sort of. Well, this is, it's not just self-referential. It's actually self-recursive. <laughs> yeah, it just gives it. It sort of gives it that sort of like the qualities of an Escher drawing, mm-hmm. rather than a knowing wink to the camera breaking the fourth wall. Exactly. Um, I mean, it's very short, but there's just so much in it. Um, I mean, to go back to the review online, they was somewhat nonplussed. I mean, I can understand that reaction because it is, it isn't kind of one of those huge wham bang twist endings. You yeah. sort of can see where it's going to go, but it's when you sort of, I found, you know, I read it the first time. I thought, oh, that's, that's a neat little story. But it's, yeah. when I came to say read it for this podcast, that I really on the second reading, you're going to really appreciate how how beautifully orchestrated it is. How there isn't a word wasted, and that exactly everything slots together, and you know you, there's layers and layers to uncover that you sort of you, you don't might not notice on the first reading. Which again, that's a recursive idea because that's how S plan works. Exactly <laughs> presents these polished, super, you know, superbly crafted little jewels of stories when he's written when he's when he's ready to write them. R- rather than just, you know, just knocking them out like Burford does. <laughs> There's a line uh, early on in the story about why, you know, why can't you just write faster and beat beat Burford, right? Mm. 
And he says, why doesn't an apple tree yield apples when the blossoms are fertilized? Why wait for summer and the influences of the wind and sky? Why don't live chickens burst new laid eggs? And then he uses some, some of his big vocab. He says, shall partuition tread suddenly, suddenly on conception? Uh, didn't the mountain labor to bring forth a mouse? Uh, so, and then he goes on and, and he says, shut up. <laughs> Basically. But, um, that, that actually is, is fascinating because I, right now I started reading, uh, The Food of the Gods by, uh, H.G. Oh, yeah, Wells. Yeah. And that's a story about, uh, or a novel, I guess. Um, oh, there's also a weird, there's a short story by Arthur C. Clarke called The Food of the Gods as well. Um, there's a story called, or a novel called The Food of the Gods, it, it, which is about, um, a, a chemical that can make things grow continuously rather than, um, grow, um, in, in fits and starts. Mm-hmm. And so you can, you know, raise your chickens to be much bigger because they're continuously growing instead of, you know, only growing when they're sleeping or something. How, how, however the theory goes. Um, but it is this, you know, people do ask those questions. I want to, you know, your little kid say, I want to drive a car now. Or I, I want to, I want to get married now or whatever it is. You, ha- you have these sort of, and you want to do something before it's ready. Well, there is also you want to eat the cookies before they're ready. Yeah. You know? well, within writers, I've noticed that they do often tend to fall into two camps. On one hand, you have guys sort of like um, like Esplan who have to say analogs in the it's like H.P. Lovecraft or M.R. James who would write a story when they were ready to write a story. Sometimes mm-hmm. only doing one or two a year. Um, where on the other hand, you've got say writers like Philip K. Dick. Mm. who was just churning out stories at a ferocious clip um, to his own talent's de- uh, detriment. I think uh, um, I think it was Brian Aldiss who said, said, you know, when I go back and read Dick, I kind of, I do lament, and kind of, I just wish he took more time on writing this because mm-hmm. the, the ideas are so good, but he was just, you know, banging them out and it's then funny writing too, another so- and... There's a connection between that and the upcoming show that was also mentioned in this, uh, in the, uh, article, not article, the editorial by Clark. Clark was saying, um, somehow this story reminded him, the anticipator reminded him of H.G. Wells' The New Accelerator, um, which of course is, would be a great tool for <laughs> S plan, right? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I just live like at high speed for a week and then I can, I can write the whole story, uh, you know, in the space of a few minutes. That's great. Um, but, um, the, the idea of accelerating, you know, is, I mean, it's not exactly in here, but there's, there's something, there's something going on with that. And it's, it's, it's very cool. And, and Philip K. Dick is, uh, I mean, he was taking meth, right? <laughs> or, well, no, they and uh, Benny's, I guess, which is a kind of related to meth. It's speed, basically. Well, he had all sorts of uh, methamphetamines and uppers and downers. I mean, um, I mean, reportedly, he had a big jar of them in his fridge, and he'd sit in his typewriter and write away when he was flagging. Whereas you or I might go put the coffee pot on, he'd have a yeah. coffee, and also have a handful of pills out of his fridge and just carry on writing. 
for days and, at a time. That's right. I mean, uh, yet he he can make you know that massive output, but you do you totally see like some of his stories totally. You say, uh, not sure what's going on here. Um, and other ones are just so well crafted. Um, it's it is a it is a mix. But it, also, there's this thing where you know Philip K. Dick's sort of already spilling with questions that he wants answers mm. to, and so he finds the answers by taking speed. Um, it it like it increases the the thought processing and the churning, but it doesn't necessarily. You know, have that, uh, you know, the holding back part. Was, Wait a second, that's not such a great idea, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's more like, let's go, let's see what's next. Uh huh. Let's see what's next. Um, and and yeah, so there is that uh, that that connection too. But yeah, I, I mean, I find Wells to be incredibly well crafted. You know, writing the the characters are never very sympathetic, um, but I think that's because he's He's not doesn't really write for characters. He's not writing to make us like anybody. He's writing to make his point, and that usually requires people to be assholes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that's true. Yes, yeah. It's it's it, there's something uh, very um, uh, much about how you know thinking it through, so that you come to the not just an idea about something, but the idea. Mm. Like what? Okay, so you say uh, airplanes are going to be big in the future, um, and y- y- you know your imagination of what they're going to be good for is uh, people can go up for rides, <laughs> you know, in the sky and and take pictures of the house. That's not the idea that, that it's going to ultimately <laughs> be. Right? It's going to be you know dropping bombs on cities and mm. maybe transportation, right? <laughs> oh, that's cool, and that's why when you go to Wells, you know. He he does sort of it's not prediction exactly, you know. There's one called the Land of the Ironclads. Oh uh, yes, yeah. And it's not it's not really tanks because they're I mean they're more like trains really land trains. Mm. Um, but it does what tanks do, right? It breaks up the trench warfare that's going to happen. It prevents prevents people from getting killed, and it moves the the guns into position that you know, overruns the enemy artillery. So, of course, that's going to be a, a kind of a usage. And, you know, if, you know, if, if a Burford wrote that story, he says, ah, tanks, cool. <laughs> it wouldn't be the, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have that effect. No, not at all. Because, I mean, I find the kind of, the dream sequence that has kind of the two men's qualities symbolized as uh, the gemstones is interesting mm-hmm. because, you hear writers often talking about trying to craft a, a novel or a story to crystallize the ideas perfectly. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's kind of... Um, I mean, I remember uh, the horror writer criti- Ramsey Campbell criticized Sean Hudson, who is... Um, I mean, Campbell is a great craftsman and a stylist. Sean Hudson, by his own admission, has written books in a fortnight. Um, and he says, you know... The trouble with Hudson is he never finds the imagery to crystallise the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, although he does his research, he just knocks them out. <laughs> but you know the ideas in it are never refined and uh, you know polished in that way. They're just assembled and wheeled out and left, <laughs> and then he's on to the next one. 
Well, I think there, there, there are like more than one reason for reading and that accounts for like why people are reading, right? So uh, the traditional way I think of, you know, and I think a lot of publishers think of the way the audience reads is they're at the airport, they're getting on the airplane, they need a big thick book to, you know, read while they're sitting there doing nothing. And so the book shouldn't blow their mind. It should pass their time. Mm. It should keep them turning the pages and interested because they can't go up and do anything else. And that, you know, in getting off that plane on the other end, having finished the book, they say, oh, next time I take a flight, I'm going to buy a book by that writer. And, you know, I think a lot of writers write for that. Re- you know, they write the they write what sells because they need to make a living at it. Some of them. And that's, you know, that's a, a strong motivation. But. On the other hand, those are going to be the more, more like more regular Morley Roberts stories, if you know what I mean. <laughs> They're going to not stick around because mm. if you're writing about the latest terrorism book, you know, that's, you know, popular right now in a hundred years, people won't know what that's all about and they'll think it's quaint and uninteresting because they're dealing with whatever modern thing they're dealing with mm. is. Whereas with this, this this story has, it's immortal in a certain sense because it is dealing with, um, as far as I know, it's the first time this has ever been on. I don't know if anyone anticipated Morley Roberts. If (laughs) if they did, maybe he killed them, but that would not fit the story. Uh, But this story's going to, like, you know, you said the first time you read it, you didn't, uh, you know, so, oh, that's cute. But as you dig deeper into it, you say, wow, this is actually there's something special going on here. And we just don't expect that from a writer we've not heard of. Well, no, well, not at all. But it's one of those things I think, you know, sometimes um, in the creative arts, there's this cult of the personality. Mm-hmm. And the idea, oh, this person is a great creator, this person is a hack. Whereas I think the truth is somewhere in between and the fact that, you know, you can, can get, say, a filmmaker or an author who just, you know, the, the, everything just aligns right. His mm-hmm. his race memory genes all click in at that moment, if mm-hmm. if you like. And he, and he produces, you know, like a three minute pop classic or or a brilliant film or writes a brilliant book. But he'll never get that. They'll never get that again. Mm-hmm. But you know, and and you know, as a big consumer of all manner of sort of pop culture and art, I kind of think sometimes we judge people too harshly because they don't have a long glittering career. Mm-hmm. And, you know, cause it's, it's, it's hard to create anything. And if someone gets something spectacularly right and they only do it once, well, that's not, you know, hey, they did it and they gave and us this great thing, you know, yeah. That's, that's the other thing is like the Esplan doesn't really, I mean, he, he's taking credit for it and he wants to take credit for it, but something weird is going, I mean, why if it's not, because of the, I mean, I think that's maybe why the ancestry stuff is going on in there, is so that we can see, you know, these two Englishmen uh, writing writing stories. Uh, I assume they're in London. I think it's London, right? The yeah, it is, and such. it is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So there's these two Londoners, and they're they're writing the same stories. They live in the same time period. It's not impossible that they would have a coincidental, you know, story. I mean, this this is. Uh, I, that's what prompts Arthur C. Clarke to write the uh, the story. You know, your story. Your story has been 
it's great, but it's already been submitted by a man named uh, H.G. Wells, uh, a.k.a. Marley Roberts, right? <laughs> and that that is it is a genuine concern that people are going to write something and then that's going to ruin it for you. But if it's not caused by that, um, by just being in the air, there's also in this story, I think it, I think even Burford is, is, uh, he's, he's connected somehow telepathically almost, you would, you could say to what's going on in, in Esplan's head. When Esplan get, goes into his sort of altered state, Esplan is also in that altered state, except he, when he gets it, he says, yep, I'm writing it. <laughs> he just sits down and writes it. Whereas uh, the different temperament of Esplan, sorry, uh, Burford sits down and writes it. Esplan's different temperament, you know, I'm going to sit on it, it'll gestate, it'll come just about, he, he, he has some small access to the fact that it's it's almost ready okay i'm getting the pencil out here we go right mm. and the, there's there's a sort of a not taking as much responsibility for it as well going on it's not like i wrote this i'm the only one c- who could have written this it's more like well i'm not sure where this is coming from is it a muse is it uh my ancestors um all i know is i take the pen I put it on the paper and words come out. And the and then he looks down at them and is saying, "Oh, this is quite good." As if he wasn't really responsible. There's something fascinating about that that you know, I mean, if you are a creative type, where is that coming from? It's not coming from the I in the ego. It's coming from the subconscious, and that's right in here. It's great. Well, this great is it. I mean, um I think you know, if this had been written Say twenty years later, you wouldn't have the talk of hereditary. You'd have talk of the Jungian collective unconscious. Sure, sure. Or maybe um, a, an ideal sort of Platonic realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is this kind of you know, I mean, I've heard a lot of artists and writers and say it, and I've had it in my own experience. You know, <laughs> um, sometimes things just are like just dropped in your head, and Absolutely. it's kind of and you go, "Whoa, I did that. Where did that come from?" Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> but other times you get a sense of an idea and it's something, it's more like archaeology. You've got to gently scrape away and uncover it and sort of just tease it out of the bedrock intact. And kind of, you know, Esplan is kind of, you know, he's a brusher and a scraper. He's, you know, he sort of locates these story ideas and he can, you know, bring them back fully formed into the world where Burford just takes a quick plaster impression and goes, da-da, there we go, and it's still got yeah. milk and crud he's on it. He's hacking away into <laughs> yeah. the earth trying to find that jewel that's down in that tomb, and he's missing all the all the beauty that, you know, he's he's mm. chopping up with his spade. Well, it's, it's like Steve, Stephen King says in his book Dance Macabre, he says, you know, like, talent is like a knife. Um, mm. And although some people may be given a God almighty big one, no one gets a sharp one. Mm. You have you have to sharpen it and you know ho- literally hone your craft, and you use that knife to you know to chisel out the ideas fully you know as fully formed and as as intact as you can get them from wherever the ideas come from. Isn't it isn't it funny when you when you start talking about this stuff you have, we have to revert to metaphor. Right? <laughs> <laughs> There's no way of because we don't understand it's all subcon it's 
it's under the consciousness, right? It's not, it's not something we have direct access to. So we can say it's like this or mm. it's, it's as if this, right? There's no direct access. So we just have to make comparisons as best we can. Well, so before, before I started kind of writing and, um, doing artwork myself, I was sort of heard, you know, creative types, you know, you hear interviews with authors and filmmakers and they talk about stuff in this, this sort of term and you just go, oh, come on, stop. Yeah. It's yeah. just work. Get on with it. Uh, when you start doing it yourself, you realize there is this strange kind of magic. I mean, a friend of mine, he's just started, um, writing in the last few years and, you know, he's amazed by the fact that you, some days you can just sit down and he says, it's like, it's not like me. I'm doing the writing. It just, mm-hmm. I don't know where it's coming from. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, whereas other days, that tap isn't flowing and you can sit all day and just get a couple of lines and you really just, you know, it's hard labor trying to, trying to access whatever it is that makes it, you know, come easy and come right. <laughs> but some I've, days I've also... you can spend a day on a sentence and still not be happy with the damn thing. <laughs> well, I've, I've heard though that, you know, like different writers talking about that effect. And one of the things that they say is, you know, oh, I've heard, I've heard it both ways, but one of the things they say is, you know, you have to wait for it. Um, because if you push it, 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 it'll come, but it won't come out well. It'll, but it'll be done. But since if you want to be a professional writer, you have to write every day, they say. Um, but there's also more than one kind of writing, right? There's the, uh, oh, oh my God, this is amazing kind mm. of story. And then there's, oh my God, it's finished. Thank God it's finished. <laughs> kind of story. And, and that's why, like, when, uh, I first heard about NaNoWriMo, I was like, this is a terrible idea because it, it, we have too many writers. Mm. I, I want, I want to have, my, my whole thing is trying to find things not to read <laughs> because there's too much <laughs> to read already, right? Um, I don't want more selection. I want less selection. I want good stuff, but, mm. I don't want, I don't want to have to dig through more to find the, the good stuff. Um, uh, an S plan that I, I think of today would be, um, uh, Ted Chiang. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't put out a, a new book every week. He puts <laughs> out a, a, a novella every year or so, maybe every couple of years. Novelette, short story, you know, that, that's great. And there are, they are, you know, super well crafted fully thought through and uh if if like uh, i i used to have ideas maybe if we all got together and gave him a lot of money he quit his day day job and uh <laughs> and i think in an interview he said that wouldn't help me <laughs> you know it's not it's not a lack of money that's that's causing it right it's that i have to work on the ideas the way mm-hmm. i work on them I know there's a, a few years ago in the British music press, they termed uh, a certain disparate group of bands as the new torporists because they re- flatly refused, often to their record company's chagrin and frustration that they weren't putting out an album every year. They'd do one mm-hmm. when they were, felt it was ready. You know, famously, I think it was nearly t- over 10 years before My Bloody Valentine <laughs> did, did a, a third album. <laughs> But, you know, Kevin Shields, he wasn't happy with it. <laughs> and he wouldn't release it until he was. Do you know there's a, there's a famous book that has never been published yet. Um, it's not a book written by Harlan Ellison, but, uh, it's, it's Dangerous Visions, I think, three. 
oh, that's been a long time in the works. <laughs> right. And some of the stories that were collected for it have been published in other places, mm. but some of them haven't. And this has been in production since the 1970s. <laughs> and I, I, I understand that, it, you know, the, the first two made a, quite a splash uh, at the time, but um, it, I believe that was around the time I was born. <laughs> <laughs> so if the third one doesn't come out relatively soon I mean there must be something wrong with it must not be coming out and everybody's too afraid to ask Harlan Allison why <laughs> why it hasn't come out yet but um, maybe he just wants to add something to it and he hasn't found the perfect thing it hasn't crystallized for him yet well in that case I wonder if he's waiting for the uh the cycles of literature move round again. So I remember ah. like Dangerous Visions one and two. They came out when there was um, a big boom for these big paperback anthologies, and they sold mm-hmm. really well. Whereas you know since then the publishing cycle has changed, and publishers frequently fall out with shorter works. If it's not a novel, yeah. a lot of the time they don't give us stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, maybe that's sort of Every time it gets close to an anthology being, um, you know, having a chance to to make an equal splash as the first two, um, he never quite gets it out because he wants to tinker with it. And Maybe then, then the moment passes, or it could be just be Harlan Ellison being well, famously Harlan Ellison. That's right. <laughs> so, one of the great characters of SF. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.